The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. As we continue in our series, Christ Over Everything, which is a series preaching through the book of Colossians, today we're going to be in Colossians 3, 15 to 17. We are coming to the end of what has been a series of instructions that the Apostle Paul wrote to a local church in the town of Colossae to help them to understand how people who have been united with Christ are to live together in Christian community. Church for us can easily become an event. It can become like church is this service. Or for more established churches, it, it can become a place. You know, you go to church and you're really talking about the building. But a local church is really the people whom God has gathered through the gospel in a particular place. Okay, so we're here. And that's good, I guess. But how do you sustain that community? And what are we focused on together? Colossians 3, 15 to 17 is God's word, which expresses his vision for Christian community. So let's read it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why is it so hard to shape a bunch of people who all love Jesus into a community which pleases Jesus? Why are we so prone to disagreement, whether it's voiced or not voiced? If the reason we exist is the grace of God, why are so many churches characterized by complaint? The original recipients of this letter would have listened to it as it was read to them as they sat together in what was probably a courtyard. They listened as Paul addressed them as saints, people set apart for God, and as brothers and sisters, people called together into a family by God. They would probably look around the room and they would see people from their small town who they had known for a long time and people they may not have got along, gotten along very well with. People who may have even been their enemies. Now they were a part of something completely new, a local church. So what do we do when we gather? And what do we do when we're not together? And how do we deal with the issues that will inevitably arise? What does life look like living together under God's rule. Now, we face the same questions because as Christians, we've all been called to commit to a local church, a tangible expression of God's people. But one of the challenges we face is that the culture around us tells us to look out for ourselves, tells us to sing our own song, and to pursue our own path. Those of us who have been Christians for a long time often don't realize how much we are shaped by our indiv individualistic desires and preferences. If you gather a group of people who are all like that in a room, what you're going to get is a chaotic and unstable compound. 
What's required to shape a crowd into a community are common commitments. In this passage, it's like Paul is blowing a whistle in the midst of the chaos and gathering us together into a huddle and giving us three things that we need to focus on together. And they all have to do with Jesus. He's calling our attention to Jesus as the basis for and the heart of a people living together in peace, growing together through a focus on the gospel, and doing everything they do in Jesus' name. And as he focuses on Jesus, it's like he's handing out jerseys for everyone to wear. But instead of our individual names on the back of those jerseys, each of them has the same word on it, expressing what we're called to be together. Our jerseys simply say, thankful. So the big idea here in Colossians 3, 15 to 17 is this. Jesus is the beating heart of a grateful community called to be ruled by his peace, filled with his word, and living for his name. Let me say that for you again. Jesus is the beating heart of a grateful community called to be ruled by his peace, filled with his word, and living for his name. Because Jesus rules over his people, his influence must permeate our relationships, our gatherings, and our entire lives. So we can break these three verses down nicely under three headings. Ruled by the peace of Christ, saturated with the word of Christ, and living for the name of Christ. Let me give you those again. Ruled by the peace of Christ, saturated with the word of Christ, and living for the name of Christ. So first then, ruled by the peace of Christ. You see it in the demilitarized zone which divides two nations with its barbed wire fences and the constant vigilance of soldiers. You see it in the shouting matches in parliament and the rivalry between co-workers that leads to gossip. Neighbors no longer say hello to each other and try to avoid being outside at the same time. A child is on the ground crying after being pushed by their sibling as they fought over a ball. A couple lies in darkness, sleeping back to back, with a pronounced space between them. That's their protest at having to share the same bed. Conflict is a part of the fabric of life in a fallen world. It draws geographical borders and it divides families. It awaits an opportune moment to make its presence felt even between lifelong friends. It is the unavoidable expression of hearts at war. What have you done? God's question arrowed from him towards the man and woman who are the crowning glory of his creation. His agony met their own. This couple who had lived in paradise in harmony with their maker and with each other and with all of creation now stood facing the judgment and displeasure of their God, protected only by flimsy excuses, excuses as flimsy as the fig leaves that they tried to fashion into clothing. From that day forward, because of their disobedience, conflict would define their lives. Man against God. God against man. Man against woman. Woman against man. The man fighting with the ground, which would no longer willingly cooperate with him with his efforts to grow food. The woman agonizing to bring forth the children she was meant to bear. But from that, hope, where none was deserved. A conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent who had deceived her. The serpent would be crushed, but how could all these wounds be healed? Now, when that seed, when that son stepped onto the scene thousands of years later, he was a polarizing figure. Some said he was a prophet and others said he was possessed. He welcomed tax collectors and prostitutes and called down doom on religious leaders. 
He preached peace, yet said he came to divide families. And he marched steadfastly to Jerusalem, not to start a coup, but to keep an appointment. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he accomplish? One of the results of the cross that Paul highlighted early in Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 20, is that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. We were living as God's enemies, separated from him, indifferent and hostile. And the whole creation had been affected by sin, subjected to frustration and to decay and to strife. Through Jesus, God was reconciling all things to himself. Jesus brought peace at the cost of his life. And the peace that Jesus brought was not like, was not like the kind of cessation of hostilities that you'd see sometimes uh, where there's a ceasefire in a war zone, but the dispute has not been settled and the hatred is palpable. Or when you've stopped arguing, but you're not talking. The peace that Jesus brought between us and God means that we have gone from being enemies to friends. That we have gone from being outcasts to being God's family. From being those who are waiting on wrath to those who are waiting on reward. That peace is the peace of wholeness, the peace of well-being. And what's in view here in Colossians 3 is not so much an individual experience of peace, but a corporate peace. Paul again employs the language of election in reminding his readers and us that we were called to peace in one body. Douglas Moo comments helpfully, God has chosen his people not simply to be his people, but to live a certain kind of life. That life is bound up with the calling and cannot, uh, bound up with the calling, sorry, and cannot be separated from it. We saw previously in verse 11 of this chapter that among the new hum humanity that God has created, all things which normally separate us, like ethnic and social and educational differences, no longer define us. But Christ is all that matters and is living in every believer. Now, Paul's appeal is for the peace given by Christ to have its proper place and its desired effect now in the community that Jesus died to rescue. Jesus' sacrifice will lead to peace for the whole universe. There will be a new and renovated and pristine and sinless creation. That's what we sang about this morning. Christ will make all things new again. But what we need to reckon with is that the church, Jesus' body, is meant to be the place where the new is breaking in on the old right now. Where we enjoy the blessing of peace that Jesus purchased for us and purchased us for. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be ruled by the peace of Christ. Now the picture here is the peace of Christ functioning like a referee who's in charge of the game that we're all playing together, or an arbitrator who's been appointed to help us to settle our differences. So Paul is saying, let the referee do his job. Cooperate with the arbitrator. That means that in relating to each other in the context of a local church, we navigate the inevitable conflicts we'll have by deferring to the priority of peace. We learn in James chapter 4 that the cause of quarrels and fights among us is our passions, our self-centered desires. Yes, yes, yes. This command is leading us to lay down our pride and to put those desires underneath the priority of peace. Peace is both a principle and a person. It's a principle we embrace and a person we submit to, the person of Jesus. 
That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, referring to Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus rules over all our misunderstandings and disagreements, not by issuing specific instructions or by saying who's right or who's wrong, but by giving us new hearts that love him above all things and are able to put the interests of others above our own interests. And by giving us an example of the heights of humility. He, the one who had the most to lose, let his glory go and suffered loss to befriend and save his enemies. So, what are you tempted to prize when in conflict with your brothers and sisters? What does your heart want to hold on to most when things aren't as you'd want them to be? Is it to be heard and understood? Is it to be respected? Is it to have your way, to have your own preference? If your life is hidden with Christ in God, as Paul taught us in verse 4 of this chapter, then you can compromise on matters that are not matters of principle. You can lay down the demands of your ego following Jesus who laid down his life. You can give up your preferences because having what you prefer does not lead to fullness. Jesus is your fullness. You can suffer loss now because you already have been given all things forever. In this verse, verse 15, Paul seems to just throw in another command. Look at verse 15 again. It ends with, and be thankful. Consider for a moment how this emphasis on being thankful shapes how we respond to the refereeing of the peace of Christ. It means that we are constantly aware of and verbalizing our gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus. As we remember and rejoice in the greatness of the blessings of salvation, we can gladly, rather than grudgingly, surrender to the priority of peace. We have much to be grateful for, including each other. And perhaps this call to be thankful is why Paul's mind was immediately on this next command that he gives in verse 16. Look at it with me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Thankfulness doesn't grow in thin air. It grows from the rich soil of the gospel. Let's consider what the verse is calling for and what it looks like, uh, what it looks like to be saturated with the word of Christ. And that's my next point, saturated with the word of Christ. It might surprise you to learn that the phrase word of Christ is rarely used in the Bible. No, of course, the phrase the word of God is ever present in both the Old and New Testament. Paul has something specific in mind here, and he very likely means the message that centers on or focuses on Christ. He's talking about the gospel. That shouldn't surprise us if we're reading and understanding the Bible. Jesus said in John 5.39 to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. For Paul, the gospel is of first importance. And that's been clear throughout the letter as he's rejoiced in the gospel, prayed for, the, for gospel fruit, and taught the truths and implications of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And as we've seen in chapter 3, Paul connects all his ethical teaching to gospel realities, connects the imperatives to the indicatives. And here he's giving an imperative that says, be saturated with the indicatives. That command means there's something here that we need to respond to that's not going to happen automatically. So recognize that what's going on here in being given a command here 
the idea is not for us to sit back and say, okay, yeah, so, yeah, but I know the gospel. I, I'm familiar with the gospel. We are to make the message that focuses on Jesus our focal point. And he describes that focus as the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. No, that's a description that's accessible to all of us. It's Christmas and you're at family dinner and it's time to have the Christmas cake or the sorrel. And before you even get it to your mouth, it starts speaking to you. And when you taste it, you exclaim and like, Whoa! because it's rich. It is spirited, full of rum and overflowing. And just like here, to be indwelt richly is not just for it to be in there in abundance, but for it to be operating in power, which you'll experience with the cake or sorrel if you have too much. Paul is calling for this gospel centrality to be expressed in our relationships through teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom. That is, in ways that are thoughtful and tactful and appropriate for the situation. The teaching means telling each other what the gospel says and means. The admonishing means warning each other about the dangers of not being shaped by the gospel. In Colossians 1.28, Paul said that this was what he was doing in his ministry. Now, he calls on all believers to do this for each other. One of the reasons you need to personally pursue saturating yourself in the gospel through personal devotions and through scripture memorization is to be able to do this for your friends, for your spouse, for your children, for those you're with in the local church. One of the ways in which you grow in being saturated with the gospel is as others do this for you. Paul goes on to mention singing. What does all this have to do with singing? Here's what's probably going on in this text. Paul, as he walks through this verse, is instructing about what it looks like for the word of Christ to be taking its rightful place of centrality in a local church. So the whole thought could be communicated like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish each other through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the teaching and admonishing is one important way in which we grow deeper in the gospel. And the singing is one important way in which we teach and warn each other and treasure the gospel. Psalms, hymns, and songs inspired by the Spirit are not so much a careful delineation of different ways in which we are to sing, but point to the full range of expression, old and new, written and spontaneous. Now, if you've been in church any length of time, you know that most churches sing a lot. But why do we do that? And especially if you're involved in choosing the songs that others will sing when Christians gather, what should be shaping our choices? Now, teaching about this aspect of corporate worship is definitely a sermon on its own, so consider this a very brief primer. Here in this passage, we're presented with a priority which is clear, but still leaves us with a great degree of freedom. It doesn't tell us how many songs to sing. It doesn't tell us what point in our gathering to sing the songs. None of that is here. But it points out the goal of corporate singing. The goal of corporate singing is to facilitate the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. It is because of passages like these that we've been very deliberate in choosing and teaching songs that are rich in their portrayal of and celebration of the gospel. A lot of them are dense in their lyrical content because the gospel is heavy and deep. As we grow, we're feeling our way towards a balance that creates more room for contemplation and response through simple songs, but our anchor is deliberately gospel-rich songs. 
And what we're seeking to do is to give you doctrinal fuel for your emotional fire. What we want when we gather together is to rejoice in truth first and not songs first. If you're involved in leading worship in song in some setting, you need to be aware that not everyone out there who's writing songs for the church and is popular is being guided by this principle. Wow, that doesn't happen very often. Are you preaching to me? No, I'm not preaching to you, sir. I have you coming later here, actually. You're mentioned coming later. But it's not a rebuke. It's a commendation. But if you're to help people to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, you need to submit to this principle. The priority laid out in this passage means that other considerations such as genre and tempo and what I really enjoy must be treated as secondary. It's not that we don't or should never think about them. It's that they're never to be given first place. But the freedom we have invites us to explore our own cultural leanings and tastes in our worship in song. Harold Best in his book, Music Through the, Through the Eyes of Faith, encourages there's no single chosen language or artistic or musical style that, better than all others, can capture and repeat back the fullness of the glory of God. So as we grow, we hope to grow beyond some of the limitations that come with the instrumentation that we now have access to. And here's where I mention you, Sarah. We really are so grateful for your consistent service, for your diligence in playing the keyboard for us each Sunday. Sarah did not want to be doing this. God kind of conned her. You know, and so she started doing this in another setting, not expecting to be doing it here, but we certainly have needed you, Sarah, and we are grateful. So a part of our hope is to cultivate our own songs, which will play a part in filling some gaps, both theologically and stylistically, in our corporate worship. We learn here that corporate worship in song is one of the ways we teach and correct each other. Now, you can certainly worship God in song on your own, listening on your headphones or just at home by yourself, but you can't teach and correct each other. The, the one anothering can't happen when we're alone. It's a unique aspect of Christian community. As we sing together, and because we've been getting to know each other better, I may know that you are going through a particularly difficult season, struggling with how, how far away God feels and with some need that has gone unmet. But then I hear you sing, as we didn't sing this morning, but we wanted to, and maybe we will later. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine, I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And you see, what that does is that teaches me how to hold on to Jesus through trials. When one of us is battling doubts that God loves us and then they, they, they see another and hear another singing, now why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief his spotless son for us? That's a word of encouragement and correction. Anything we do together in community is going to require some level of bearing with one another as we learned last week. But as we lead you, particularly in worship in song, our aim is to help you grow in your understanding of what we're called to do together which can help you to transcend your preferences and wholeheartedly participate in serving and discipling others as you lift your voice and sing. And on those days where you cannot get yourself to sing, come and let us sing for you and to you. And as we sing with gratitude for the gospel, we can do so with our whole heart, singing for each other and singing to God at the same time. You may have noticed that I've been speaking of worship in song. 
There are many voices around us today that treat worship in song as if it is worship, as if God has given it pride of place. But this passage teaches us that all of life is worship, as it instructs us in living for the name of Christ. So that's my third point, living for the name of Christ. Look at verse 17. This instruction given in this verse is a culminating instruction. Throughout this chapter, Paul has been teaching about how the gospel affects our hopes and priorities, how it demands that we rid ourselves of sinful desires and behaviors, how it calls us to put on the character of Christ in Christian community and to learn to live together in love and peace. He's going to move on to teach about how the gospel affects the typical household of the day. But before he drills down to that level, he swoops back up high above it all and says the gospel affects everything. Listen to how he teaches here. Whatever you do, do everything. It's universal in its scope. He's still talking about worship, but we're no longer in the realm of corporate worship in the gathered church. Now our saturation with the word of Christ is to spill out in everything. Everything we do and everything we say. Paul echoes this particular command in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. To do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is to seek to consciously live under the Lordship of Jesus all the time. That doesn't mean that we say the phrase in Jesus' name before everything. You know, you put the car in gear in Jesus' name. It means that we live our lives always desiring to please our Lord in everything. It means that every attitude, every utterance, every action should be consistent with the character of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Now, does that sound arduous or burdensome to you? The more you grow in the gospel, the more you understand that living under the lordship of, of Jesus Christ, the more you come into just the fullness of our understanding of who we are in Jesus, that calling is anything but burdensome. You see, sin is what makes our lives miserable, and we become a danger to others around us. Sometimes it's fun while it lasts, but it always destroys and devastates. Living for the name of Christ is true freedom and joy, and it makes our lives a blessing to others. Even hardship and ill-treatment and suffering take on new meaning because, just like they were for Jesus, they are for us occasions and opportunities to please God and to be grateful. If your thought in response to this command is, but I mess up all the time, be comforted. He knows that. And he loves you still. And he has already covered all of your sins. You're not doing this so that God will accept you. He has already blessed you with the fullness in Christ. So when you mess up, don't waste time beating yourself up. Gratefully accept the gift of forgiveness. Deal sincerely with whatever you broke or whomever you hurt. And get going again living for the name of Jesus in everything. Our lives are filled with many things, with mundane tasks, with taxing responsibilities, with important moments, with joyful celebrations. There's work and there's rest and there's play, and it's all for him. Again, this shouldn't surprise us if we've been paying attention to this letter. We name this series Christ over everything because that is the ultimate implication and application of the truths it has been teaching us. 
if as we learned in chapter 1, verse 15, the, one of the verses we're studying, if everything was made by Jesus and for Jesus, if God's goal is that Jesus would pre be preeminent in all things, then surely his lordship should be reflected in every aspect of the lives of those who gladly submit to him. If everything exists for him, then what domain of our lives is exclusively ours and is private? Because Christ is over everything, there is meaning in everything. Everything counts forever. The commendation that we all are made to long for, the well done from our Heavenly Father, is not going to be based on a few big moments in our lives. It's going to be based on a whole life lived to honor and please Jesus. That means that what God has called you to right now is significant. You don't need to do some big thing for Jesus. You do not need to be a world changer. You're free to live an entirely unspectacular life in the eyes of the watching world. In fact, often those obsessed with significance are tempted to overlook the importance of the mundane and to neglect the people in their lives who they are called to love. And they can also fail to enjoy the blessings of God in the small things because they're always working on trying to engineer some big thing. As fathers, we need to remember this. Not every aspect of what we're called to is the stuff you'd want to capture in the stock photos that you end up using on advertising and on, 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 on banners and posters. Sometimes the work is exhausting. And when we're stretched, we're tempted to respond to our children and our wives as if we are Lord and everything should be done in our name. But we're instructed to approach the calling of fatherhood under the lordship of Christ, putting on his character and seeking his glory, knowing that every little task, every patient minute, every sacrifice matters to him and will be rewarded by him. And of course, doing everything in the name of Jesus will affect what we actually do. As we become more and more saturated with the gospel, we'll see our sin more and more clearly. And when we see it, we won't hug it up. We won't defend it and build a protective wall around it and feed it and tenderly care for it so it can grow healthy and strong. What we'll do is confess it and expose it and systematically dismantle it. One interesting application of this is moderation. A conscious pursuit of doing everything in the name of Christ helps us to enjoy God's good gifts, but to seek to do so in a way where nothing becomes an idol. Threatening to take Jesus' place and the things we love don't lead us to fail to love those around us or to do damage to ourselves. If you lift the examples in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that we read and apply this principle to them, eating won't look like gluttony and drinking won't look like drunkenness. For me, one of the things that I've had to learn to do and I'm still learning to do is to enjoy sports in the name of Jesus, particularly following the English Premier League and my team Chelsea. In the past, I, I would have to admit that my love for that was definitely idolatrous. I would give up Sunday services for a big game. You know, and I, 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 I was thinking about this. I can remember times specifically when you know, we have a young child. It's just going slowly in the morning. And I'm fine. I'm good. Because we might not make it. Oh, man, we miss church. Oh, it's so late. We can't go now. Oh. Well, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. But you see, this gathering is not just a matter of showing up and attending. It is for growing in the gospel and in relationships with each other. Now, now, of course, I have to be here, but I don't lament it. 
Precisely because I love football, I have the opportunity to, exp to express a greater love for Jesus by making my presence among his people a priority over that. And God has also challenged me and taught me to re-engineer that love so that I'm no longer crushed by crushing losses. No, again, this is a bad thing. If Chelsea lost a key game, my family would feel it because my mood would change, my affect would change. I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want to be around people. And it was just wrong. So now I'm no longer crushed. I'm disappointed, but I can put it in its place. It's a game of football. Jesus is still on the throne. <laughs> and I no longer boast too much in glorious victories. And I'm less likely to become a, it's, this is less likely to become a reason why I sin against other people. So we need the encouragement and the perspective of our brothers and sisters as we seek to obey this particular command. Sometimes we need encouragement to stay the course when it gets hard. Sometimes it's just hard to continue doing what we know pleases God in a situation. Sometimes we need another set of eyes to help us to see ourselves, to recognize what is pleasing to God already in our situation, and to grow in pursuing that, and to see things that aren't pleasing to God. It's an amazing thing to have people in your life who will come to you and look at you and say, hey, let's talk about this thing. I saw something, I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah. Because that helps you to see your own life in a way, sometimes that you cannot see from being so close to your own situation. This passage calls us as a local church to be ruled by the peace of Christ, filled with the word of Christ, and to live for the name of Christ. Jesus is all up in this thing. He is the beating heart of everything we're called to do. But the other thing that's all up in this thing is gratitude. In every one of these three verses, gratitude is echoed. And be thankful, with thankfulness in your heart to God, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That thrice-repeated command to give thanks is not a burden. It is a gift to us. It serves us. You see, God certainly deserves our thanksgiving, but his quality of life is not improved when we give it. The one who reaps the blessing is us. Thankfulness leads us to focus on and express delight in all we've been given rather than on what we're laying down in surrender to the rule of peace. It is a natural overflow and the consummating delight of the gospel taking deeper root in our hearts and having a greater influence over us. It is a joy shared between us in the gathered body as we celebrate the overwhelming goodness of God to us in Christ. And it is the, the, the distinct and unmistakable flavor and the inexhaustible fuel of a life consciously lived in the name of Jesus. Truly we who have been rescued at great cost by a great Savior through no merit of our own have much to give thanks for. So let's pray and let's give thanks. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.com.